you know, you have a different relationship with the objects that you touch and you, you interact with physically. And I think that good design, whether, and, there, and that's, which is, there's no definition to what good design is, but design that, that you enjoy, that brings joy to you, that you can indulge yourself in, it, it betters your life. It really does actually excite you in the same way the art does, but you have just a different relationship with it. You're actually, it's, it's tangible. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. One of the first profiles I ever wrote in the realm of collecting was for a 2006 issue of House & Garden magazine called The New Tastemakers. It was an annual feature that included the rising stars of the design world, and getting to write any of them was a real thrill for me, as I was an assistant at the time. It was an incredible full-page spread on Jeff Zimmerman, a glass artist who created all kinds of incredible, blobby, and iridescent creations that wasn't just about art per se or anything strictly decorative either. It was something new, something exciting. It was also my first introduction to a New York design gallery that I'd come to know and admire ever since. R & Company or as it was known at the time, our 20th century. Founded by my guests today, Zesty Myers and Evan Snyderman, Arn Company has, over its nearly 25-year history, altered the trajectory of collectible design, how we view and value craft today, and so much more. In fact, so many young rock star designers owe much of their careers to these two intrepid gallerists. Katie Stout, the Haas brothers, the list goes on. Evan and Zesty met as glass artists, where they were part of a performative group called the B-Team, which Zimmerman was a part of. As you'll hear today, their business started as just a couple of artists looking to make some extra cash by selling some mid-century furniture that few found desirable, and later blossomed into what it is today, one of the world's leading design galleries that exhibits at fairs all over the world. With many pieces by their designers and museums, various books to their name, and with two incredible spaces in downtown Manhattan. Simply put, they're true pioneers and fervent evangelists for all things design. Somehow, over the years, they've managed to make design, and American design in particular, both utterly cool and taken super seriously at the same time. I caught up with Evan from home and Zesty from his office to discuss their early flea market days, how they transitioned from hard scrapple vintage dealers to a proper gallery, their latest breakaway designers, and more. Before we return to the program, a word from our partner, Polyform. With its Italian roots dating back to 1970, Polyform is the ultimate purveyor of design-driven products that outfit nearly every inch of the modern home, from its stunning kitchens and dreamlike storage systems to sleek and inviting sofas. Using decades of knowledge and a mastery of Italian style, Polyform's incredible designs go beyond the ephemeral trends we see so often today. Instead, they exude a kind of recognizable elegance you'd expect from a company headquartered in Brianza, near Lake Como. As the Grand Tourist is always shopping for his next remodel or just dreaming about it, Polyform has many instant icons to consider. The Mad Chaise Lounge is one such icon with a clever and simple design, turns traditional ideas upside down. It's an idea that only its creator, Marcel Wanders, could dream up. Known for his playful objects, works of art, hotels, and furniture, 
the Dutch designer always knows how to add a bit of whimsy to any concept. The Mad Chaise Lounge is a perfect example. It has a low, mid-century-looking arm on one side and a long, single-cushion seat with a curved base. But what makes this stand out is the design's back. The side with the arm has a tall back that looks almost humorous, a typical Marcel Wanders move. But that tall back also changes the chaise into an impromptu high-back armchair when the mood suits. For more information about the Mad Chaise Lounge and all of the brand's incredible works of design, visit polyform.com. I, I actually kind of, I've known you guys for a while and, you know, it's kind of hard to think about the New York design scene without the two of you guys in it. And so I was wondering if you could tell us the story about how, how the, the two of you first met. What's the, what's the origin story of how uh, Evan met Zesty? Well, yeah, that's a, it's a long, a long one. It goes back quite a ways, but, um, you know, sort of, I guess in summary, we, you know, met in a kind of art school. We were both artists. We were both working in glass. Um, you know, we had both studied glass blowing in, in different schools. Zesty, um, you know, had, uh, visited the university where I was studying with a group called the B team, which was a traveling, uh, performance group. Uh, made up of students, which um, Zesty had founded with several other students at what uh, Mass Art. We sort of, you know, became friends, I guess, a little bit remotely, um, and then we met again years later at a different glass blowing school. Um, and when I was deciding to move to New York uh, in around 1992. Um, we sort of reconnected at Urban Glass, which was a school in downtown Brooklyn where um, was really the only place to work in glass in New York City. And um, I got a job working as a TA for uh, someone there. And uh, Zesty was working there as well. And we started hanging out. Um, and then uh, he invited me to join the B team. The B team had sort of been on a hiatus for a little bit, but had reconvened. And I joined the B team around that time. And uh, that's kind of where we met, or really like where it started. I don't know if Zesty wants to talk a little bit about the B team, but yeah, Zesty, what is the B team? So or what, what, what was it? It was, it was really created at a, at a time in, um, uh, in, in like 1990, 91 of a way to, you know, there was no way to figure out what was happening across the country or throughout North America at the time. And the only way was to physically go and be able to see people or meet people, right? There was no, any of this other technology that we have today. And there would be, you know, a monthly magazine and that would be, that wouldn't have that much information compared to what was happening out there um, or magazines. So um, at the same time, the NEA is cutting the budget for the first time in America in many years for artists. So uh, we simply band together as a group of people and eventually became a not-for-profit knowing as a group, we would have be able to have better access or be able to accomplish things uh, quicker and maybe, maybe be able to do things we would only dream of being a group instead of the individual. Um, so we did this at first to figure out what was going on, but then that quickly turned into doing installation and performance art with molten glass. Um, and this started to... What is that like? What's that like? It's dangerous. <laughs> How does a performance art? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, the glass blowing world has always been very you know, object oriented. And I think that was part of what the B team tried to um, break down uh, and challenge. And actually it's funny because we've talked about this many times that, 
you know, what we do at R and Company as the gallery is very similar to what we were doing as the B team like a long time ago, which was just trying to sort of like push things forward and never be satisfied with what was presented as the norm, let's say. Um, but the B team became kind of almost not quite an anti-object maker, but we realized the molten, the, the glass itself lent itself so much to performance. Um, the material is so captivating. And in many ways, once the object was finished, it sort of died a little bit. Um, so we set out to kind of like create this almost spectacle with glass. We were also very much inspired by the action of some of these other bigger groups um, like SRL at the time, which was doing like, you know, these crazy performances with fire and machines. And um, we sort of did a similar thing, building machines that could shoot hot glass. And we would dance on hot glass with our feet on fire and, you know, Make it rain, molten glass. I mean, we would do uh, we would do everything that you shouldn't be doing with the material because the material is actually supposed to be limitless. And we don't. And in all of our lives, every day, we're affected because of technologies with glass, right? And um, and and so then, why would the arts community be becoming more stagnated at a period of time? We also really wanted to. Um, we didn't see a difference between craft and fine art, or craft and performance art. They're both in both all these mediums. And we purposely set out to try to bridge um, these gaps um, by having being able to be technical using the craft, but come up with concepts and ideas. Um, the goal was that this wouldn't take up our whole lives and we would have our own individual lives. If it was to teach, make work like Evan and I were doing, we were both showing in galleries throughout the country. We both have work in museums from this time of things that we made. We were making a, a living by being artists and working in our craft. Um, and the, the B team became more, it got busier and busier and busier. We were raising more and more money and, um, and the goal was really just to bridge those gaps, not for it to turn into our life, or that was my goal at least. And um, and it got to that point where it got too busy, where it's taking up six months of the year now, eight months. We're being invited to go to Japan. We're starting to be invited to go to other countries. We're helping opening the new floor of the uh, new museum when it was still on Broadway, and they got a second floor. And we're getting Bessie Awards and Tiffany grants and things like this are happening. And that was sort of... Uh, uh, sort of accumulation in the end. And at the same time, we'd already started what um, was to become our own company. And how did that start? So I guess that's a, so we, uh, at that same time, you know, we were both working in the B team. We were both uh, teaching glass blowing at Urban Glass and both making our own art on our own individual careers. Um, so there was a time where, uh, I had a friend who was selling, um, you know, vintage clothing at a flea market on the Lower East Side, 11th and A in the church parking lot there. And and I had I had always been a collector my entire life. I always, starting as a kid, I started collecting matchbox cars and then like pocket knives and, uh, you know, all sorts of things, um, even antiques when I was young. And I would display them really, you know, elaborately in like my bedroom at home. Um, and so I had always uh, collected, I had so much uh, stuff basically in boxes in my loft in Philadelphia where I was living at the time that I realized when I was going to move to New York that I had to sell some of those things um, to be able to you know, actually move into an apartment. So I started coming up to New York every weekend uh, with boxes of stuff in my car and setting up at the flea market with my friend 
And I did that on several weekends, you know, and sold things. And I'm talking nothing of any value, you know, but right. things I picked up at flea markets, you know, vintage binoculars or like old lunch boxes and like, you know, stuff like that. Um, <laughs> and there was one weekend where, you know, Zesty said, oh, you know, I have some stuff I want to sell. Maybe I'll set up with you. So that was sort of how it started. So we, we bought a table together at the flea market at 11th and A um, and started selling things. And um, that, you know, weekend turned into a summer. Um, and there was, and we started to, at one point we realized, well, this is kind of interesting. We were actually making cash because we were not, you know, making a lot of money as artists, um, but we were sustaining. But this was an extra boost you know so we thought well let's do an experiment and if what what if we take a hundred dollars each and we go back to our old haunts and see what we find because i was you know i knew every thrift store in philadelphia to new jersey and and zesty coming from uh, providence go back there and uh buy what we could buy with a hundred dollars and bring it back the following weekend and see what happens and then what happened it happened <laughs> I mean, it just, it was really that simple. It really started where we would buy stuff for a dollar or two and sell it for three or six. And then it was just multiplication. But then people always, people always took notice of us probably because being trained as artists and not coming from a business background. And this has probably been one of our biggest advantages and everything. Presentation is everything for us. It doesn't matter how good we make something when we're artists. It's only how good as you present it, if people can see it. Right. If the audience can't see, then what does it matter? So I think um, then there was someone who lived across the street from this flea market on 11th and A that was a dealer and came and sourced stuff that we had. And Evan had found a George Nelson steering wheel clock um, in the and, most un, you know, expected place in a thrift store, like underneath the elevated train deep in like North Philadelphia, like the worst neighborhood of Philadelphia. <laughs> and I bought it for five dollars. Nice. And, and I think, yeah, I think. What did you sell it for? Do you remember? I, I think a hundred. Yeah. And, nice. And, and we were like, we that was it. Like it was like an addiction, right? And and some sort of like, wow, you could go do this. This is real. And the guy that bought it also was a collector and sort of dealer and trader, and started to give us some stuff to also sell. And all of a sudden, we realized that we've stumbled upon something. Um, what? And this is even before we get to, you know, and then we start to get more stuff and we get a little bigger and we're getting more educated and we, we have been, you know, sort of educated. I grew up with, with mid-century design in my house. I grew stuff for, that my grandfather bought for my father and my uncles and it was in my rooms and now it's in my kids' rooms still. Um, and I grew up around this stuff and I, I had traded some of my artwork with someone that was a dealer, a very, very big collector. And he had an amazing wall of books that we started to reference were, and were able to use to start to do research at the time as well, which really gave us, um, which we started to figure out quickly what was what and what was who and, and training our eye, what to look for more. Um, and, and then we started to, then we moved to Chelsea, to the flea market, which was like the big time. Yeah. And, mm. Well, there was a sort of, I didn't grow up with mid-century design at all, but I grew up with um, craft. So my parents had a craft gallery. So I spent my whole childhood, you know, going to ceramic studios and wood shops and glass blowing studios all through the seventies, you know, and eighties. So I knew a lot about that material just, um, but we, we had this idea. We, we, so yeah, we had, we sort of moved 
to, and we were at this time using Zesty's basement in Williamsburg as our storage. So we started to grow. We had to, now we had, you know, we were, we were starting to collect stuff and um, we started going to estate sales. This is where things started to really like change. Um, we had this idea um, that we, we knew there was estate sales happening around and we, we had heard about them. Maybe we had been to one or two or stumbled upon them, but we started going to this newspaper store called Hodlings in Midtown every Thursday. And Hodlings sold every newspaper around the country. And we would buy all the newspapers from every surrounding area of New York City. So like Scarsdale, each neighborhood, uh, Inglewood, New Jersey, had like a little local paper. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the Burgeon Star. I can't even remember all of them. We'd get like 10 newspapers. 10 or 12. And then we'd spend the entire night Thursday till like two in the morning going through the classifieds of every single one and circling the ones that sounded interesting. Like if it said mid-century home full of furniture or occasionally it would mention a name like Eames table or, or, or something. Miller or something it would say. Right. Or like right. 1950s bar or some crazy, you know. And you guys were were already were you guys were already like you know gravitating towards you know modernist uh, mid century yes, modern right. stuff. When once we got to Chelsea, we were already set that we realized this was a move uh, a market that had a lot of room for growth, and we were interested in it. Zesty knew a little bit about it. We had some connections to people who were already in the business. Um, we started to really look for mid century design like pretty right away after even well still at the 11th and a flea market before we went to Chelsea. So as, uh, as we would read the newspapers, we would pull out the maps, right? We had maps for all of these neighborhoods because there was no other way. We wouldn't know. We wouldn't know how to get to these neighborhoods, right? We'd never been to most of them in Jersey or New York or Connecticut. And we could easily tell if, the, if, if on the map, if the neighborhood had wealth by the, the size of the blocks. Yeah. Or if it was near mm. a golf course. <laughs> yeah. You know, or like something oh, okay. like that. So we, we would actually target based on the description and the location, um, which ones were the best use of our time or if there were several in one area. But to get to these estate sales, you know, you had to be the first in line. So um, we would often go to if there was a really good one, we would both go because normally we would split up because we had to try to cover a lot of ground and see what we would find and come back the next day. But when where was a really good one, we would actually go together the night before and sleep in the van. And the um, cops would oh, come wow. all the time. I, the, we, we, I had this van that I'd bought from a gun dealer that was all like blacked out, which was even made <laughs> it had, worse. It had like metal gates on the windows. It, yeah. it had Rhode Island, Rhode Island plates. It was definitely... Rhode Island plates, two guys in a darkened van with Rhode Island plates. Parking in someone's driveway. At two in the morning, parked in front of a really fancy house in Scarsdale with the engine running. (laughs) Did you you wear leather jackets just to kind of like complete the look? Yes. Maybe a fedora. But those estate sales were interesting because you had to, you know, there was this, each each of those were in a community and those communities were, were controlled by neighborhood estate sales sort of experts, right? So each neighborhood had a group of pickers who would always be the first there. And the way it worked is whoever was first in line, no matter what time you got there, you would put a piece of paper on your windshield with numbers one to 30 and leave it there. And then people would tear off the numbers as they arrived. And then 10 minutes before the 10 minutes before the opening at like 9am, people would queue up number one through 10 would be the first ones allowed in the house. And that was it. 
So we ended up being number one in every single neighborhood. We would just, people were like, who the hell are these guys? Like we would show up and they're like, people would get pissed off, you know, cause guys made a living being first. And, and all of a sudden we're in some random neighborhood and they show up at, at 6 AM thinking, Oh, you know, in the bag and we're already there. So you guys got to know each other pretty well. If you're in a black and van, like it's like a stakeout. Yeah. It's like a cop. It's like a cop show. It yeah. Was, and, and then uh, it's amazing. We never got beaten up by some, in some of these neighborhoods with these people. Cause we really challenged what was their hierarchy of how they did things. And how long did that period go on for this sort of the stakeout <laughs> period? Probably three years or so. So we would, we would get up on a Thursday, right? We'd do what Evan said. Like this newspaper store was like heaven for us on 42nd Street. And and then, but then we would go Friday morning to these estate sales, bring the stuff back Friday afternoon and Saturday morning be up at 4.30 or at the flea market at 4.30 or 5 in the morning setting up. So, and then we would do the same thing on Sunday at the flea market, but we would be buying things at 4.30 in the morning as well at the flea market in Chelsea at this time. And we, we would buy things. And if we didn't sell things, we would have to make two trips to get it home, which never happened. Right. Um, but because so much was coming out, we didn't. Our our own fortunate thing that happened is um, every a lot of the mid-century started to come out in the mar- market through nutrition for the reasons why it makes sense. Right. The stuff had started to come out. People live with it. The sons and daughters didn't want most of it. The parents were downsizing, etc. It was it was the time that it would come on the market naturally through a progression. We, of, yeah. Of we hit it at the right at the right moment where think, you know, you would find things in the in the trash all the time. We would pick stuff out of the garbage, oh you know, God. like like Laverne chairs and like Eames chairs, all, Eames chairs, and all kinds of stuff. But, um, you know, we started to become more and more specialized and more and more um, discerning. And as we were also buying books and, and trying to learn about this stuff. Um, and then around this time, still at the flea market, um, we had a friend who was from Sweden, who was also a glassblower, who invited us to come. He, you know, was in New York. I think we hit met, met and he said, you know, you guys should come to Scandinavia. There's a lot of mid-century design here. And at this time, yeah. nobody was going to Scandinavian and his mother had been an antique stealer. So he had a lot of connections. So we, we flew to Denmark or, or Malmo or Stockholm. I can't remember our first trip. Copenhagen. I think it was, and we I think it was Copenhagen. Before the bridge, we'd fly into Copenhagen and we would go to the Salvation Armies, which would be called, they call it the ants there. And we would literally have to choose if we could take the Finuel or the Yanni Jakobsen or the Hans Wegner because we would be running out of room in the Sprinter van we would have. And we <laughs> literally have to picking, choose. Yeah, we would spend yeah. three, four days driving across Denmark and then Sweden with the van, filling it up from thrift stores and occasional like you know antiques markets or and, things and like reading that. the classified ads there at the time in the same way the, the blue paper they would call it there um and then there would be someone that's deaccessioning like paul hennison lamps from an office and there would be 50 of them or 30 of them and right? never forget the first time our container arrived oh at God. zesty's loft on the corner of north sixth and ferry <laughs> um at the time when you know that part of williamsburg if you know williamsburg that was still the meat market and yeah, it, it smelled horrible. I mean, like the gutters <laughs> were like rotting meat, guts and blood. And we had this giant 40 foot container arrive full. Wow. Uh, we had nowhere to put it. it. It didn't fit in the basement. It was, we literally had well, the we entire had the store block. Too. It filled the whole store. 
if you're know, right, we had rented a space. We'd rented a space a couple blocks away as a warehouse, which happened to be on a block with a bunch of other antique stores on South First and White Avenue. Not um, at first. I mean, they came, but yeah, but we, but, but we paid. I think ten thousand dollars for a forty foot container. We'd made. We'd sent. I don't know how many pieces, hundreds of pieces back from Scandinavia for under ten thousand dollars. Um. It was and the, all of that, you know, today is a complete, you know, that that is that is an error that could never really come. Yeah. Well, now we out. spend ten thousand dollars on one piece. On a, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Now when we go, that's to true. Ch- but the inventory is that even, you know, is that even out there no, anymore? No, like no, that, no. Kind of, no, that's all. No, gone. we would walk into shops in in Copenhagen, and there'd be three Swan sofas for sale that were just taken out of some hospital. You know, I mean, this doesn't wow. exist anymore. This this stuff, yeah. Um, or, because this was pre-internet. This is pre... The internet didn't really exist. It, it existed, but it wasn't... People didn't have websites. There wasn't... Sure, not on that level. Before we return to Evan and Zesty, a word from our sponsor, Duravit. Founded in 1817 in Germany's Black Forest, Duravit is the international authority on design-driven bathrooms. The company collaborates with leading designers from around the globe to create spaces that enhance your everyday. One of the brand's daring visionaries is none other than world-renowned designer and former guest of this very podcast, Philippe Stark. The influential Frenchman's latest Duravit collection invites us all to feel the flow. Soleil by Stark reflects the restorative nature of the sea with its soft, refined lines and organic forms. Clear and timelessly modern, the new range spans wash basins, toilets, and tubs, fitting into a variety of styles. Soleil fuses function and beauty for a truly harmonious design, a signature in all of Stark's collections. For more information on Duravit or to find a local distributor, visit www.duravit.us or call 888-Duravit. When did you guys transition from, you know, having a small space to kind of becoming, you know, to, to switch from being a vintage dealer to, to becoming a gallery? Well, we, when we, people begged us to come to our warehouse at the Chelsea flea market and the Chelsea flea market is actually more important to the whole origin story of why and how this happens. The people we met at the Chelsea flea market did, um, were, were the wealth of the city, were names on institutions, were running culture behind the scenes or in front of the scenes, were the gallery dealers, were the performers, were or the celebrities or the rock stars or anyone else. And it was, it was incredible who we actually met at the flea market who still is con- in uh, doing their thing and making New York happen to this day. And it, we had no idea that that's what was going to happen or how it would work out. But these people would beg to come and see, like, take us to your warehouse. We want to see more. We want to see more. And we didn't have one. So we eventually went, rented what was going to be a warehouse, more glorified. And we were going to open one day a week. But the second we tried to move the first piece of furniture and before we could get it through the door, we sold it on the street. And then soon enough, like the next day, we're open seven days a week. Um, there we're and, still doing the flea market and we're still teaching glass blowing. We're still doing the B team. So this was a very, that's when we realized we had to kind of focus and we were doing too much. And, and, um, we decided like, okay, we're going to, we're going to really commit. And I think that was, we were on a, I think the, the way it's all maybe started to change was, uh, we were on our way to an auction in upstate New York. And we were driving for like a two hour drive, talking the whole time about the market, 
trying to understand who was in the business, who was making money, how are they making money, how much money do we think they were selling, like um, what were the who were the top dealers, and you know, kind of trying to analyze the whole business at the time, which was all vintage dealers. They weren't really contemporary design dealers, zero. Um, and we didn't have at that point. We still didn't have a name either, so we were sort of. You know, we were like talking about different things. What would, what would we call our space in Brooklyn? Um, and so we spent the whole trip up to this auction uh, talking about this. And we get to the auction and we're there to, I don't even remember what we were there to actually bid on. Probably some, you know, Haywood Wakefield furniture or something stupid. Uh, and there was this like four foot, five foot tall stainless steel R with neon mm. um, going up for auction. And it had, come off the robert hall men's clothing but we didn't store. know that at the time it was just this big r that was neon and and we you know we had one window in our shop in williamsburg and we looked at this thing it was like that r looks like it would fit perfectly in our window it's like why don't we just call it r and that was it wow. and we're gonna let wow. we're gonna buy this r no matter what you should it be telling the story of because this is the mystery because everyone wants to know how it must mean something and we literally just found this big r and we, 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 no matter what, we were going to buy the R. So we buy the R, we hang it in the window. The New York Times does a little profile of whatever the section was at the time, shows the actual picture of the R. And some guy calls us up saying, hey, did you buy that upstate in Cold Springs at the auction house? I lived with that R for 20 years. I bought it when the Robert Hall men's shop was going out of business in New York City. And that's how we knew wow. where it came from, right? Oh, I see. Okay. But, Do you still have the R? Oh, yeah. We're never getting rid of the R. We've we had it in the window at the at White Street recently for the anniversary. We'll we'll bring it out from time to time and put it back on, which is really cool. Um, and it it sort of made sense. I don't know why, but coming from the B team, and then there was this. You know, we had this relationship to the sort of just running through letters. letters. <laughs> um, and and that was kind of where the, the the it started. And so right away though, we realized in this business that no one was really doing exhibitions. And having, again, come out of this sort of art school mentality, like we need to do something more. It was, we didn't want to just sell furniture. This was, you know, it was interesting for a little while. And the, the you know, the hunt was always fun and exciting, obviously. Um, but we wanted to do more. And we thought there was a real opportunity to sort of get in on the ground floor on doing something more uh, dedicated to sort of history and 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 learning. And, th- and we kept on these trips to Scandinavia, you know, buying books and and in our trips around um, the U.S., everywhere we went, buying books, studying the books, um, we started to sort of educate ourselves on the design history. And we realized that there was so much more out there that hadn't been discovered and that um, we didn't really want to ever sell what everyone else already sold. We could eliminate our competition by just pivoting and creating our own path. So rather than trying to find or bid against someone for a Nakashima piece uh, or, <clears throat> you know, or Jean Prouvet or any of the stuff that everybody was selling. What about all those other designers from the period that no one has really paid attention to? So we started to uh, hone our sort of, uh, you know, interests on these unsung heroes and targeting them. And I guess that was around the time that we realized also that if we're going to do this, we can't do this in a small shop in Brooklyn. We have to move to Manhattan, where so all the, our clients were. Our time period is we open in Williamsburg on the south for, on the south side, which was crazier than the north side, um, in 97. 
um, sometime in late 97. So 98, 99, and, and then by, by 2000, May of 2000, we're open in Tribeca um, is, is what happened with the time. And we're still doing the flea market when we first opened in Tribeca, right? The internet is still not totally there. there the information of all the defined what everything is isn't there yet still. So the flea market still had a lot of relevance for everything that was going on. And it's true. We would we would literally go, we would say like if Alvar Alto was the number one designer from Finland, who was number two or three? How come we don't know who they are? And then we would try to find out and we would get on a plane and we would just go there and just start walking around and asking questions. Um, and, and we would go to the antiquarian stores, Evan said, and we would just buy books. Even if we couldn't read them, we would be able to identify who the designer was. Um, and, um, and that's, um, at the same time, this is what we did. Uh, we had, we had bought a book on Oscar Niemeyer and sat down and theorized if he could build utopia, they wouldn't import all the design. The local designers would have to be just as interesting as the architecture. And how did that, how did, what was that first transition like to, um, to, you know, contemporary, uh, uh, designers? So the contemporary design starts a few years later. So we, we really start to focus originally with historical design. And in, in our first year in Tribeca, we did three separate exhibitions and published our first three books in our first year in 2000. We did an exhibition on Ilmari Tapiavar from Finland, Kees Brockman from Holland, and then Greta Magnus from Grossman from Sweden slash Los Angeles. Um, and so now we have a program and we start to do regular exhibitions, probably two to four exhibitions a year in those, in those first years. And <clears throat> we started to also look to doing collaborations. And now in those early exhibitions, we really were going all out on our installations and, um, you know, working with architects, we started collaborating with different architects to design exhibitions for us, to transform our space, to build these kind of narratives and these stories. Um, and, so our contempor our shift towards contemporary design really starts with Jeff Zimmerman. Um, I don't remember what the first year was, but Jeff Zimmerman, who we still represent uh, and still now is our, still our biggest artist in terms of, you know, who works in glass and was part of the B team. So Jeff was one of our oldest friends um, and had a similar idea. He didn't show in glass galleries. He was only ever showing in art galleries the same way we had done as glass artists. Um, and when you're talking to someone like him as a, as a quote unquote design gallery, was it hard back then to kind of say to, to convince, uh, you know, artists and designers to kind of say, Hey, we had this vintage dealing business and like, come on board with us. And you know, what was that? What were those well, it wasn't, like? it wasn't like that. It was sort of the opposite of that. <laughs> Jeff was a friend of ours and said, Hey, I'm making all this new art. I'd really like to put it in here to see if anyone has any interest in it. <laughs> and it was, it, and, and once again, it was really that simple. And, mm. and sure enough, and we're like, okay, you're a good friend of ours. It couldn't hurt. It was, uh, he was working with this, these colors that sort of helped uh, what we were doing. And he brought some work over and literally overnight, we had messages on voicemail and people trying to buy it out of the window. Mm, yeah, we had art amazing. dealers trying to buy it out of the window. Well, that was the other thing I was going to say is that there wasn't – still, we never really saw a difference between what we were doing and what we had previously done as artists or in art in the art world. There was, the hierarchy didn't really ever exist in our 
minds between what we were doing or any other art gallery, even though we were selling furniture or design. We approached it in the same manner. And, and, and with that, or building, like, how do we even get to contemporary? Like, when we did the, we opened Werner Panton show a month after September 11th, and it was his first, uh, we did two immersive installations, but we had, back then, we had an art advisor named Todd Levin come and speak with the, our, the gallery dealer, Andrew Kreps, with the young collectors group from the MoMA for art, not design, right? We were always instantly doing this because we we pushed the conversation more like, well, did Panton uh, influence installation art, which was very popular at the time, well, still is, obviously, right? But what? how, how do these synergies work? Where did they cross over? How do you put them together? Why are they important? Um, how do we think about things? Um, and we would try to always push people to think instead of just well, giving the answer like, oh, we have the best uh, whatever piece today. And that's it. This is the best. And we would never represent it. All of it became the best. And a, and a lot of our big collectors in those early days um, were art dealers. So some of our first real serious clients were some of the biggest art dealers in New York City at the time. And all of whom were, you know, were still friends with you know most of them. And we'd done projects with a lot of them over the years. And, and so that did open other opportunities to us. So then there was an art dealer who saw Jeff's objects and asked if Jeff would ever consider making one of his objects into a lamp mm. and ended up commissioning Jeff to make his first illuminated, illuminated sculpture. sculpture. Yeah. And that sort of changed everything. Before we return to Evan Zesty, a word from our sponsor, Gloucester. At Gloucester, they open the doors to beautiful exteriors by taking the long view and using the very best materials and techniques available. Gloucester's aim is to deliver impeccable furniture and countless special outdoor moments. Renowned for their use of fine teak, contemporary materials, and award-winning designs, the same passion, pride, and conviction that launched the Gloucester brand in 1970 continues to fuel the business. Today, trade studios and premium retail partners represent the brand and support their clients wherever they're found. And Gloucester's trade studios are in the heart of internationally recognized design districts, New York, L.A., Chicago, and the Dakota, Florida. And the brand also collaborates with the very best retail names throughout the country. Explore the Gloucester brand online, find your nearest Gloucester vendor, view products, sign up for the newsletter, and use a 3D planner to dream up your perfect outdoor space at Gloucester.com. Or follow at Gloucester Furniture on Instagram or Pinterest for regular updates and stunning imagery from their latest collections. Gloucester Furniture. Wherever you find them, you won't be disappointed. And today, uh, if you could describe, like, how is the business set up today in terms of, like, locations and people for those that don't know? Well, we have two public locations. Um, they're a couple hundred feet apart on two different blocks, but we are amazingly lucky to have an alley, almost like you're in London, connecting the two that connect the two spaces. So they're very easy to get to. The new gallery on White Street um, has three stories open to the public, and it's more of the masterworks. It's only about exhibition. And there's normally two to three exhibitions, and they're at any one time going on. And the middle floor of the gallery is dedicated to uh, the archives we built to educate ourselves, but then eventually we went much further into the idea of archives and started to collect them. And lo and behold, ended up with things that um, many other uh, places around the world don't have that are needed today. 
or even institutions like Columbia or the Public Library in New York or other such schools don't have. It was never the intent was to educate us for our client, not to end up with something that some other institution didn't have. And now we have full-time archivists that run our publishing department out of there to help give back. And the archives are semi-open to the public for people that make appointments. And we have everybody from elementary school students on up to the world's leading scholars that are coming to use this, the place and space to do research for whatever projects they're working on, which is really great that we can have a space that gives back, that educates, that does exhibitions, and is also a place where you can touch, feel, and buy. And that's what White Street does. Franklin Street is sort of the opposite. It's where we live with design. It's where we, um, it's more like your home. We have three different heights of ceilings in there. So it's more like people's real homes. It's mixed. There's um, uh, vignettes of contemporary vintage or vintage and contemporary together. Um, and it's also um, where we would take stuff to give, show it on approval to people or people that needed to see things. And the two things are needed because people still aren't so used to looking at exhibition and design. And when you walk into our space with those 14-foot columns and things like that, a lot of people like that would never look good in my space because they're not visual. They're not trained visually. They don't do that. They know what they like, but they need to then have the context. Or this is why they need architects and designers to help them, right? And so both things have really worked to our advantage. And the idea of why we wanted to expand in the same neighborhood has made a lot of sense, uh, um, except being closed during the pandemic. And what, and, and uh, that brings up a good uh, idea, thought about discovery. And I, I think I can speak for a lot of design journalists and editors who would always know to look to you guys to find something new and, and, uh, you know, you always had, you're always discovering something on the behalf of, uh, of the community at large. And, and I kind of wanted to, to take you to that sort of moment after the, the big, the great recession and where things kind of shift. And there's like a new generation of like American designers who had a, a kind of focus on a little bit of humor and craft and color and kind of moving away from a kind of more seriousness of, you know, that mid-century that that's sort of Scandinavian look. Um, you know, and I think about people like the Haas brothers and Katie Stout and, and can you explain that moment and what your, your memory is of it and, and, and how it all kind of began? Because it's so, it happened just as like the internet was starting, you know, social media was starting, just starting to take off and digital media, um, put that, explain that moment to, to the listener and how that is really this kind of flashpoint. I don't know if I could key it in on, on a moment, but there, well, I guess a lot of it starts with the beginning of Design Miami um, around 2005, you know, where, where um, the sort of contemporary design world starts to be seen on a global scale. That's really where things start to change. Um, and we were a big part of founding that fair um, 15 or 16 years ago. But the, I feel like we've sort of found our stride around this time where we realized that we had a lot more information and knowledge about the craft of objects and understanding of that than most other people in the field. Um, and we started to sort of seek out people that could bring this sort of hybrid of craft and contemporary art and design together because that's what really excited us. And that was also at a time where we kind of were a little bit frustrated with the continuous uh, admiration of the French. No, nothing against the French or the classic, you know, 
great design that we all love, but that there was there, everyone was sort of overlooking American design. There was this huge push for you know the Dutch design, and and every artist was coming out of Eindhoven, right. and then there was all this you know it's like well wait a minute, what's happening here? So we started to focus back on ourselves. That's where that kind of started for us. This again, it was a bit of that aha moment a bit of that discovery a bit of that taking a chance where we saw something i mean the first time the haas brothers came into our gallery they hadn't made anything yet really they had made some cabinets for uh, a collector and they had you but know it wasn't their artwork they yeah they were they were um but they had you know they came in with this little piece of brass tile that they glued to a piece of wood and they had some photographs Dan, Dan, literally the sample was this big this is what they had, and and they had some There's photographs. No joke. Like you're 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 showing uh, for the, for anyone listening, yeah. you're showing something like the size of your fist, essentially. Yes, yeah. and they they <laughs> they they had just come back from a trip to Iceland, and they had all these photographs from of like their trip there with of, of rocks and of, of like sheep, and they left that meeting. And Zesty and I don't I don't and you really it's hard to explain. We said I don't know what. The hell those guys are going to make but it is going to be interesting hmm. um and we just said in the next phone call with them uh we invited them to be a part of a group show i flew out to la a couple weeks later and did a studio visit with them and and then they just just sort of like we unlike un opened the floodgates it was like no one had ever told them to just go do it hmm. and then they just did it and that has been our sort of, you know, concept ever since. And do you do you think that there was just a whole generation of of you know kids coming out of art school and and just or design school that just didn't have anyone kind of to turn to that kind of gave them that sort of you know license to thrill? <laughs> oh, oh wait, oh wait, I always think that's there. It's only how much time we have to go and keep finding it. I think it, it could, there's always another niche. There's always another sector of the country that's doing something interesting that we, none of us can see yet because we don't have the time and there's only so much time. The one thing that we wanted is we loved that Jeff Zimmerman was very different than David Wiseman compared to the Haas brothers, compared to Katie, compared to Rogan, right? We didn't want just to be stylistic in a certain way or nationalistic or materialistic. And we purposely tried to, we, we didn't, want two of the same we wanted to keep finding things finding people that would push the conversation push the idea um uh be able to teach maybe also to keep inspiring us to keep us inspired to be motivated to keep seeking and keep looking and and it's still the same to this day as we we taking people very slowly still because of the amount of effort and time that we're able to put in and what we're able to offer most of these people besides that we can sell your work. We do so much more than selling people's work. We have a program with them behind the scenes of how to hopefully create them to have longevity instead of just success for today. Right. We never want to have that flash, you know, and, and like great success. We don't, we, we want to try to create a long-term success for, for the artists as much as we want to create a legacy for the gallery. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's taking that long view versus the quick and easy route to success. And so when it comes to someone like, let's say Katie Stout, you know, who's sort of a, a, a rock star and, you know, especially as a designer and as a woman, you know, you know, if you think back, 
10 years ago, it was more male dominated than it is today. And, you know, tell me a little bit about that relationship with Katie Stout and, and because her stuff is so unique and so, uh, not what everyone, you know, thinks about when they think about design is, you know, today it sounds almost, uh, gosh, like t- today it's, she, her work seems completely, you know, accepted and we've known it for a while, but you know, when she started, uh, with lamps shaped like, you know, like women that look like they're made out of Play-Doh and like that kind of thing. Like how was that relationship started and how did you nurture her and guide her in that beginning? Because her work was so radical. It, it was the same way. It was giving, trying to give that freedom. You, I don't know why people always try to restrict people into the, a, a category, a thing, a style, right? That she already had these ideas in her, but what was she, when, what she was making when we found her was not that. No, right. She was, was making these other sort of, you know, simple clay formed, you know, objects, very, you know, kind of naive shape, beautiful things. But I think it goes back to that idea of, um, you know, and, and she was she was brought to us by way of a friend. Um, and a lot of the artists we've come to represent, I would say, have come to us through recommendation uh, someone who we really trust or really um, work with says, you know, you should look at this. I have this artist that I think you should check out or, you know, th- that. And so there was a, a person who we were really close with, who's unfortunately no longer with us, um, who said, hey, this is artist, artist Katie Stout that you guys need to work with, who's struggling, um, needs help. And I think she's got great talent and made the introduction. And that was, you know, it. And, um, you know, with Katie, she fit our mold perfectly because she has this kind of energy and this sense of humor. But yet there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of things going on in the in those uh, pieces. There's not just a, it's not just a one liner. It's not just a a joke. I mean, there's, she's she's making a real statement. She has a lot to say The the work has real meaning and depth. And then it also has this relationship to the making and to the craft and to the, you know, it's just sort of like perfect storm that fits the R and company model perfectly. And, you know, when people look at her work and see it as so playful for Katie, it's really hard. I mean, this girl works in a way of like when she does a fruit lady of how many times her parts are hundreds of parts she makes and builds and rebuilds and, the pressure to, for her to get it where she can release it, it for her is an incredibly arduous task. And this is pr- also probably why the work has become so interesting and, and, it, and the public has bought it, um, loves it in a way too, because it has it, you know, you can't see it, but, but it, 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 maybe subconsciously it's there. The sophistication of these things um, in the end, as much as it's playful on the surface or bright, brightly colored, Um, it has these other, all these other things are actually going on with the work. Um, and it's not like she can just make this work and pump it out there because we would all see too much of it. She, she can't do that. We've represented her for eight years, almost what, seven years. I'm not sure, but quite a while, but she's only had two exhibitions. Yeah, no, it's surprising. And well, also, uh, I mean, I I think the fair has also kind of become their own sort of. That's true exhibition in a way uh can you describe for those who are who are listening what is a fruit lady and how many has she <laughs> how many how many fruit ladies have passed through the doors of 
of um, Iron Only Company. three. Yeah, have we? Um, oh, wow. I mean, there might only be five or six in the whole world if. Yeah. But it, I but, mean, it takes her over a year to make one. You know, oh, wow. um, so the, the, those are really complicated works, as Zessie was describing. I mean, and Katie, as, a, as an artist in general, she doesn't produce a lot of work. Um, and that's why it took three years for her to have her second show with us from when we started talking about it to it actually coming to fruition. Um, those those pieces are so complex. Um, and and she's also an artist who's never quite satisfied. It's like working on a painting for years. She'll work on a piece for for a year changing it, chopping things off, gluing things on, repainting it. You know, she's never satisfied with that work. You know, she really challenges herself um, that in that way, I think. And, and it, that's what makes the work so strong. And I guess the job we're doing the right job because of what you said, Dan, of thinking like she is this known um, and is and has gotten out there and has become a, a big uh, woman of influence and has a personality that's incredible. Um, and but there isn't really that much work of hers out there. Um, it's just been that powerfully or that effective from maybe from partially from the quality of what makes her so great and the time she puts into it. And then with us, with the mix of presentation of then how um, it's been traveled around. But. Um, you know, some days we wish we had more Katie work. Of course we do. <laughs> and, uh, who are, who are some of the collectors that have come to you over the years that, you know, you would say are, um, some of the bigger names that people might, might know that, you know, who are collecting design that maybe they just, you know, doesn't sometimes people who collect design don't don't really speak about it much because it's not as doesn't get as much attention as like art or, you know, these big sort of headlines about how much someone paid for a Warhol or. It, yeah. Or we're, we're just at the very, very beginning of, of something else, which is what, what keeps us going too, is that we feel like we've only scratched the surface in terms of the collector base of design versus art, which is massive. Um, we're only like about 15 years in since this sort of design Miami model started to, introduce the art collector to the idea of collecting design. Um, most people still don't think about design as part of their collection, but that's the new idea. That's the thing. That's the, the, I don't know, but uh, the genesis of a new movement, the idea of design as being part of your collection, not just something that you use, but you also get to use it. So it has sort of the best of both worlds. You get to enjoy it in an intimate relationship differently than you do the objects on your walls. Um, but so that there's, there's so much more room for growth in this industry. That's where we get excited because we really feel like we're only just at the beginning of this. And there's only a handful of galleries in the world that are really doing this. When you're talking to these, uh, to, to collectors from Europe and, you know, you guys have such a strong, uh, American design thrust to to what you do and and um, there's the show you did recently about um, about American design um, that will be you know traveling to institutions and you did an amazing book about it like what is their reaction to the people that know you know as we said before maybe a French uh, collector who knows Prouvé and you know what are they what is that experience like when they're when they're seeing you at a fair or coming into the gallery when they're in New York. Um, their kind of take on, on American design. I think it's exciting. I think, I think it's they exciting love too, dis- yeah. They like the freedom. Yeah, and or how it could mix with what they already live with. How this could add to that story or their collections or their um, their home. And I don't, I don't see it as being 
so much of I, I think we do it probably more often than we actually know because we don't actually get to know what everyone's putting their things with or what else they totally live with um, unless we've gone to their homes. Um, but I think this is probably happening quite often um, all the time now. And I, the, the welcoming and, and a, an American design is very, very popular in Europe today particularly his, um, the, like the Nakashima or the, the, even the, the later stuff that leads right up to what we're doing. So I could see it as a natural progression as people go through movements or styles uh, for decades and generations that this keeps growing that way. But it's not just the Europeans, it's the whole world now, right? Because where does our client really live? Is it in their Paris apartment or the New York apartment or their one in Beirut or is it Hong Kong? You know, and the, the world is globalizing in a different way. When we first started, it would be more regionalized, but now it's, it's, you know, it's, it's really interesting where things start to go or how people gather as communities of like minds like this. And I've always thought of you guys as such a, a fixture in the New York scene, but have you ever thought about opening a gallery in London or Paris or, or what have you? Yeah, we get this question all the time. Um, you know, I, I have I have a really nice desk in, in uh, Tribeca, New York, and I really like it. Um, we w- What we've done very successfully is partner with other people. Um, do I really want to have a full-time gallery somewhere else right now compared to what we've taken on and the amount of space we try to manage? No. Would I love to share the experience with someone that knows their community anywhere else in the world that would be the right partner for the artist and us to grow? A hundred percent. Yeah, I think there's there's still, like I said, a lot of room for growth. And um, when the right opportunity or the right partner or the right moment happens, um, we never say no um, to things if we feel like there's the right decision to be made. We're never afraid of of growing and changing. We've never stopped growing and changing since we started. So um, to say a definitive, you know, yes or no to that question is is it's impossible to say. And, you know, now we're, we're in this sort of new, this new period and, and you've done, uh, you know, you're taking on some new, new designers. Can you tell me a little bit about Serban Ionescu? His work is truly, you know, uh, something different. Can, can you uh, explain to people, uh, uh, for the podcast, like what, um, you know, who is he and and what does he do? So Serban is a trained architect um, who was born in Romania, in communist Romania, but moved to Queens when he was 10 years old, grew up in New York City, um, went to the art uh, art and design high school here in Manhattan, in Manhattan and um, then on to Pratt, where he studied architecture. But Serban is a great example of somebody who really got you know, sort of tired of the idea of what architecture was supposed to do and um, didn't want to follow the rules and basically had too much energy to sit and draw straight lines Um, and started to sort of challenge uh, the conventions of architecture very similarly to the way like the Italian radicals did in the 1960s where they didn't have a lot of opportunity to make buildings so they chose to make small objects and objects of design um servants use design as a sort of uh his his work exemplifies the idea of pushing boundaries and and um creating almost in a way a new uh breed of of functioning furniture that really challenges 
that notion of function. Um, and he, he also adds, like, we're showing a pavilion in the exhibition that is was commissioned by a client that's going to um, stay in Manhattan and be, go behind a brownstone. And it, the, the pavilion is totally functional. It's 22 feet tall. It can be seen by all the, all the floors of the brownstone, which I think is spectacular. Um, but what I think the achievement of it, besides that it's, it's beautiful, is that it is, we're, we're, we're all used to obviously seeing architecture in sight and plain because this is how we live. Uh, less of us know sculpture in plain or situ. And, but what Serban's done is he's combined the architecture with sculpture with design into a piece, in one piece. And that I've never seen happen before. And I think that's an amazing accomplishment. And if we can get that out to clients that, and this could be on the interior of someone's home because uh, this could be a whole interior room instead of outside and landscape, um, then there we're gonna, um, people are going to live the way they want to live um, by using uh, what he can do. And the amazing thing with Serban is because he was an architect and his first real job was being a model maker, he, the models he makes are incredible. The technical skills of drawing these these pieces up are something like he he does the whole thing where he designed the pavilion we have so it comes apart and almost packs doesn't quite pack flat but breaks down but he engineered all this he has all of these skills and his drawings are incredible um and but he's found he's found something he's found a, a, a like a, a niche in a way or a, an object that no one else is 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 producing which is very hard to do this idea of an architectural folly as an object as a as a work of art uh it's certainly it's been done but but i don't know if i could name another person doing that currently um and 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 using the the idea of sort of the calder outdoor um you know stables or sculptures these painted brightly colored forms um it's so engaging i mean everyone that sees these these pavilions are are immediately you know brought in it, it invites you to participate and i think that's a big part of his work too it's a, his work is participatory he really wants you to interact with the work to go inside there's always doors that open and drawers and things that move um and I'm really excited to see how these pieces exist in the world, uh, and how they how how nature interacts with them. Uh, he has one one of these large pavilions in upstate New York that was installed almost two years ago now, called a Chapel for an Apple, and it was commissioned by a, a, an, a, an artist, a, a collector who has a, a sort of apple orchard in upstate New York, and this piece sits somehow sort of in there, and you know it's a it's a it's a structure you can go inside. There's actually a ladder up to kind of like mm. a second tier where you can peek out, um, but it's completely open to the elements. It's not, it's not a, it's not a, uh, you know, a shelter. Um, but you know, over time, how nature will interact with it, how birds might start to nest in it, and I, I mean, you could keep it completely clean and repaint it every year the way you do mm -hmm. a Calder sculpture, or you can let it wither away. You know, yeah, change. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how these these works happen. Us having the ability to show this in the gallery is incredible, and that was the dream of the new gallery was to was to get to the next level of dreams of of the contemporaries basically that are making these things, and that's what uh, we've been able to do with the pavilion. It's the first time we've used it from the ground up. We, you know, we have in the our gallery uh, since the viewers might not know we have about a forty foot tall atrium 
normally what we presented hangs from the ceiling down. Um, this is the first time we've really come from the ground up and it's so effective and people are so surprised coming in and seeing this thing. Um, and then being able to use it and touch it, like I said, the, the touch and the feel, right. You, they, the people, everyone that comes into the gallery is actually able to interact with this piece. It doesn't have like a stanchion or anything around it or don't touch me kind of thing. Um, and, and I think that's one of the other abilities, um, like we had, or the success we have is, is, is the power of feel and touch and how we, how we can affect people that, um, relate to materials, um, in different ways to give them, um, other feelings, sensations, or help with their sensualism of why materials are important. And I'm curious, you know, over the years, um, is there anything, uh, from the gallery that you've held back and you just couldn't sell and maybe is, um, in your own private collection what is the is there like one thing for for each of you that mm. we have a big we have a very large pers private collection um we've always kept things throughout the entire gallery's history um for each stage of our growth or um discoveries we've sort of managed to keep certain things um, how many pieces are we talking about oh hundreds I mean, we have a 16,000 square foot warehouse in, oh in Brooklyn um, that that is full. Wow. So, um, but we have a, you know, that warehouse also has our tech facilities. You know, we do all the technical work for the artists installations there. We do, you know, shipping and receiving and we have a whole entire, you know, back of house business as most, pe most people don't see, mm. which explains again, the, the amount of logistics that go into selling design versus maybe, um, selling art sure, sometimes sure. yeah i mean this is a massive facility it has about 20 foot three foot ceilings and part of it but keep yeah evan and i there's always things we want i can't pick a thing i could never pick a single piece either there's and you know a, a, and there's things that evan and i are personally attracted to that might have no value to anyone else right, right. but we we're in love with this object for the same reason why a client falls in love with something else they see in the gallery and, and, and why should our feeling be any different than what the client's experience is? We are the client as well, right? And we don't just sell our taste. We try to push an idea and it, it helps. It's almost like a graduate school idea because it keeps our taste growing um, and changing and um, being able to do building and being, being able to own work from the individuals that we represent, either historic or contemporary, is a wonderful thing we've been able to do. And we will always want to have more of it. And there's always something that we've sold to somebody that we wish we could have back. Of course we. And so it, it happens in both ways. But I think it's also important for the people that will listen and the viewers, you know, it's, we're talking about all this, you know, this wonderful success, which is great that we've been so successful, but we fail every day in business, you know, and this is, this is, you know, we, we've, we work really, really hard to get this right. And we do not always get it right, but we've learned from the failure about how to try to get it further down the road or be able to improve um, with the next time, next fair, next show, next person, whatever it is to try to do this. And we, and, and, and I think that's the real learning curve is to keep trying to improve upon the failures to keep getting them better. And I think that's why one of the reasons we also keep growing instead of uh, stagnating or just showing the same thing over again. And that, that's a, a, a good as one of my last questions. Like, what was your biggest failure? Instead of talking just about success, like what was the biggest, uh, the biggest oops 
in the history of of R and Company. Oh, I mean, there's one or two things I wish we would have bought and, sp- and spent more money than we had that day. That would have been worth it. Um, but 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 the failure breeds the success. So all these smaller failures that happen, you know, it looks so pretty when you come in, but like you know, it's you know we. It's it's a struggle, and it's and, and we have to juggle how to do this. And we 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 have an incredibly powerful thing that we get to do besides sell creative things to people. We also provide livings for people. We have a full time staff of twenty people, but then how many people do? Never mind the artist directly, but how many people do they employ? Right. We have a massive responsibility, and if you think about it, we have a very tiny location in the sense of the map of how many people um, get to work with us to be able to have a living. Right. And how can we keep improving upon that? And we, you know, we've, <laughs> I was always brought up that if, oh, one day you're going to go through a recession. But yeah, you know, Evan and I, you know, have survived September 11th, 2008 and nine, and now a pandemic. Um, you know, none of these things anyone could have forewarned us about. Those are hard things. But when, when, if we can struggle through those hard times, the best thing that happens at a moment like this, even with the changing world that we're in today, is that when those doors reopen, if we're organized and ready, this is how we grow. This is when we expand. This is when we can go and do more of what we've always dreamed of doing or finding a way to get more of it out there. And you, you partially mentioned it, like the Objects USA show we did, Dan, we're going to, it will get on the road. It will be shown in other institutions as we will have a second iteration of this. We did this because the institutions that did the show originally that put America on the map 50 years ago didn't really redo the show or shows to the level that they could have, or maybe they can't do them for whatever the reasons are. So we took this on thinking it was important in the sense for America to be known to the world again of what's happening today and why there's so much creativity, why the waves of immigration are so important to bring culture into mix with the culture that's already here to create the future. And that's the thing we keep looking for. I think our biggest failure is probably time and never having enough of it. A special thanks to Evan, Zesty, and Ed for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.